Genesis 2.25 to Genesis 3.13. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpents, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Uh, well, before we jump into uh, that text, let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father, each week we open your word to hear from you. And then all of us coming in, we come in different place in life, different questions, different things we're wrestling through. And, and all of us, no matter where we're at this morning, God, we, we need to hear from you. And so, Lord, speak. Through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is wrong with the world? And we all have an answer to that question, or at least like I'm not I'm not aware of anyone who would try to make the case that we live in a perfect, harmonious universe where everything works out exactly the way that it should. Like we all agree, something broke. So what is it? Uh, some answer it in the way that uh, Rob Lowe's character, Chris Traeger, in Parks and Rec, answers it in one of his first moments on screen. He says this, Scientists believe that the first human being that will live 150 years has already been born. I believe I am that human being. Right, it's a joke, but actually, there are a lot of people who believe that what's wrong with us is we just haven't evolved enough. That science, technology, evolution is progressing us to, to heal all that's wrong with us towards a better future, the progress, technology, that is what will save us. That's one answer. Another answer is, uh, it's lived out really well by uh, three boys in our house, and this week uh, their grandparents were visiting them from Indiana, and they brought them shields and swords. And it's like just immediately they knew what to do, which is that there's evil in the world, and we're going to go destroy it. And part of the problem was the two older brothers decided the evil in the world to destroy was their younger brother, Abel. So we, we talked about that. Uh, it's, no, he's not the evil one. That's uh, not how we do this. But they, it's just in a, a sense... There's evil in the universe that must be destroyed, and that's why we have swords and shields, and we're going to do this. 
Uh, for many of us in this congregation, some of the last two or three weeks, I've had a number of phone calls or conversations, just people wrestling through the reality of our mortality, of, of death. Death is what's wrong with the world. There's a million ways to answer the question of what's wrong with the, the world. And the Bible has a really interesting answer to that question. But it's a weird story. Right? I just read it. There's a talking snake. Someone takes a bite of an apple and everyone's like everything's destroyed by that. It's a strange story and it sounds ridiculous and a lot of people sort of write it off. Like, look how naive the Bible is. And yet, like, it's actually not a naive story. And if you let it if you let it speak, if you if you hear what it's trying to say, I think it actually could potentially give you a really profound understanding of your experience. This world. The universe was not destroyed by a talking stake. It was destroyed by a lie. And so I want to look at, at Genesis 3 kind of three ways. The lie, the truth, and the covering. The lie, the truth, and the covering. And, and it all starts with a lie. And, and I want to start this week uh, where we were last week. That, that you know, Easter, we, started, we looked at Genesis 3 as well as John 20. Today we're in Genesis uh, 3 again. Today, but I want to start in the same place because I think a lot of times we just like we get fixated on the fact that God said there's one tree you can't eat from, and it's like what's up with God with that? But that's not the the, the proper context. The Genesis two, the first command God gives in the Bible to human beings is this: you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of that you shall surely die. So the first command of the Bible, before we get to the don't do this, the first command of the Bible is literally eat of every tree in the garden, except for one. Right? Like This needs to be said again. God is presented in Genesis 1 as the master of the feast, the creator of the party, the first being that ever looked out and said, let's eat. Right? Like That, that is who God is. And so, so that's how the, the garden story starts, with the man and the woman. They are, they are feasting. They are naked together. They are unashamed. Like, this is the good life. They're living it in the garden. And then a talking snake shows up. And it's weird, right? I, I, where did it come from? Why is it there? What, why is it talking, right? It's all sorts of, of questions. And to, to deal with that briefly, the first is, like, the Bible doesn't really tell us where it comes from. It's just not interested in that, that story. It's interested in what the serpent says, but not the, the serpent itself. And second, even though this is weird to us, it actually would not have been weird to the original hearers. And not because of what some people t will tell you, which is, well, people back then believed animals talked to, to one of them. No, they, people did not believe that back then. And what they believed, actually, and this is why, if you go back to the first sermon in our Genesis series, I talked a lot about uh, the Elohim and how there are many spiritual beings in the universe that we don't see. And people in this day took that for granted, that, that there was the universe you saw and there were spiritual beings created that you did not see. And the assumption was in that day is sometimes those spiritual beings would speak through animals. Right? So people didn't think, like, well, back in the day when we talked to snakes, no one believed that. But they did believe there were spiritual beings who sometimes would communicate uh, to you through animals. And that's what's happening here and if that if you hear that and like that sounds so naive and backwards like just let this like before you get there let the story speak because if if you do actually think this will provide for you a profound understanding of your own experience if you like it's weird i know but let it keep speaking it's actually not a naive view of, of evil 
Because what it's saying is that the, the entire universe is broken, goes wrong, over a lie. And the supernatural being who's talking to the snake is, all he does is lie. Literally everything he says to the woman is not true. And I want to walk us through this because they're all important. And so the first thing that he says is, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Right, which I just read you what God actually said. And no, he didn't say that. This is a lie. And Robert Alter, a uh, Hebrew scholar, uh, would say this actually isn't a question. The serpent isn't saying, did God say this? He's actually saying, well, God said this. Why did he say this? Right? It's, it, though God said uh, you shall not eat of, of any tree of, of the garden of, of good and evil. Right? He, 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 he says that. He just lies. God did not say that. So that's lie one. Lie two, then, is in verse four when he says, well, if you eat of it, you will not die. In the very next chapter, this, will, this lie will be exposed for what it is when Adam and Eve will bury one of their own children. The, the, the taking of this fruit will lead to the death of a child. And the third lie is when he says, God knows that if you eat this fruit, if you eat this, this fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened. Which sounds like a good thing. Like, right, like, your, your eyes aren't open yet. You're not, you don't see things the right way yet. And, and the Hebrew actually plays on this. Later when the woman looks at the, the, the fruit of the tree, uh, we, we read, the woman saw the tree, right, her eyes are coming open. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes, and it was to be desired. This, the phrase desire, like it's a lusting after. It's, a, it's an uncontrollable urge. Yes, her eyes are open, and now she wants something in an uncontrollable way. Right? Every uncontrollable desire we, we've ever had goes back to this moment in, in the garden. Yes, our eyes are open now. It's not good, though. And all those lies, right, those, there's three, but they're all, all of those lies serve to sort of hold up the, the lie in this passage. What the serpent really wants to get the man and the woman to believe, and that's at the end of verse 5. Right? When you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. You can be God. That according to the Bible, Genesis 3, what has gone wrong with the world is just every human being is now in a quest to become our own God. And I really like if I say that, you're like, no, I'm not. That's, come on. Which is why the Bible, the Hebrew text is actually, it's not just saying you're going to be like God. Actually, it qualifies. It explains what it means by that. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. And that the Hebrew phrase, knowing good and evil, it doesn't mean now you'll be able to, uh, to identify this is good, this is evil. What that phrase means in the Hebrew is now you will choose what is good and what is evil. Right? You're put in a gar garden where God has told you this is good, this one thing is evil. Don't do this one thing. But what the, the serpent is saying, don't let God do that for you. You decide what is good. You decide what is evil. That, you have to make that determination for your Yourself, You can be like God. You can say this is good. You can say this is evil. Don't let God define that for you. And now we're listening. That sounds good. And we all do that. In fact, in many ways, like, in many ways, like, that's, that's actually what the church has taught over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. 
There's a book that came out uh, in the mid 2000s that uh, was written by a sociologist named Christian Smith, and what it was, it's sort of a long, uh, long study of religion in America, and it looked in particular at teenagers in the late 90s, early 2000s, and what they believed. And so this is right at the time I was in high school. I wasn't a part of this study, but it, it sort of it critiqued what what do religious teenagers think about Christianity, think about God, because whatever they think is what the church has taught them, right? And so what he found was that. The way people understood Christianity was, was this. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And God's primary reason for existence is to ensure that happiness. And so God is rarely involved in your life. You rarely need him for anything, except for when you're not happy. And then he needs to step in and make sure that you become happy. That God's essential reason for existing is to make us happy, however we define that happiness. Right? The, like the goal of life is what do I need to be happy and God exists to serve that in. Like that's Genesis 3, right? I decide what, what my life should be and God serves me to make that happen. We've actually we've taught that as, as, a, as a church, that the goal in life is to be, is to be about me, my own happiness, my own self. And this isn't just like church that's that said some of these things. Like this is our culture, like just lives on this idea. And there was this interesting movie that came out in 1995 called Safe, which was sort of a critique on our culture's idea that you know just be true to yourself, be your own, you know, your own source of happiness. You decide for yourself what's right and wrong for your own life. And this 1995 movie called Safe starred Julianne Moore, and she was uh, <clears throat> she was a, a mom, good life, uh, lots of money, kids, had it all together. And then at some point in the movie, she becomes convinced that the world around her has toxins, and so she must get away from people uh, and others because they have toxins that are going to infect her and make her sick and, and cause her to, you know, to die. And so gradually she withdraws from society. She withdraws from her friends, then eventually her own kids, her own family. They're a threat to her, so she withdraws to this desert community, this monastic type place where, where she can be safe from all the toxins. But even there, those people, they, they're not safe to be around. So eventually she withdraws all the way to the middle of the desert in this igloo-looking place by herself. And the movie ends with her saying in the mirror, I love myself. I love myself. Which is sort of like, that's our, that's our culture's conversion narrative, which is, don't let anyone else tell you how to live, what's right, what's wrong. Don't, don't let a religious tradition tell you that. Don't let a scripture tell you that. Don't let other people tell you that. And gradually withdraw into yourself. You define what's right. You define what's good. Only you know what will make you happy. You have to do that, that thing. And as I said, it's made its way into the church world. One of the, this is a tough place to go, but I, I want to go here because this has been my experience as a pastor. One of the hard things about being a pastor in in this day and age, is, is the gospel is this incredibly offensive thing that confronts all of us. And yet if you try to do that in a church, people will often just go to a church that won't do that to them. Right? So, I, you know, this, this week we had, a, uh, we had an all-staff meeting. And I don't know if you've ever done, like, the Strength Finders uh, gifts, like, assessments. Like, there's executing strengths. There's, uh, I forget what the rest, but there's a relational category of strength. And, uh, and I had none of those strengths. Right, like I know relational strengths with her, and so like there's like sandwich, like I'm okay with offending people because I just I'm gonna tell you what I think because that's just that's who I am, and and yet like in in a pastoral role today that is so difficult because if if the gospel's confrontation comes through, oftentimes what happens 
is people will not accept that confrontation and they'll just move on somewhere else. And it's so hard for a church community to, to be in a place where we look at someone and say, you can't do it that way. Or even, I think the reverse is true. It's important for people to say that to me as well. So look at me, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I get carte blanche. That's not true at all. There are people in my life who say, Tim, don't do it that way. That's not right. And yet it's hard to have meaningful community that does that because we're all retreating into the igloo. Where no one's, everyone else is toxin. They're not allowed to say to us, that's wrong. Because we define that for ourselves. Now, we're our own gods. I say what's good. I say what's evil. No one gets to say that to me but me. And if that's not resonating with you, let me get even more practical. Uh, illustrate this even more personally. Um, we had our, our baby girl four weeks ago. And uh, for whatever reason, she, just, she likes to sleep during the day but not at night. And so there's been a certain, Misty and I just, we're not sleeping a whole lot. Uh, and we also have three other boys to take care of at all times at the same, you know, the same moment. And so, you know, we just had a stretch where we weren't sleeping a whole lot. And uh, when you're not sleeping and you're rest and you're overtired and you're trying to take care of four kids, that leads to some really fruitful marital conversations. <laughs> uh, so we were fighting uh, with each other. Uh, and it was the middle of the night. And Misty, she was just, she was so tired. She even was not sleeping. And she was just like, she was looking at me saying, I just, I'm so I'm tired. I need your help. Please help me. I'm worn out. I think we all know what the right response is when someone says something like that to us. So imagine like the exact opposite of the right thing to say in that moment, because that's what I said to her. Because at 3 a.m., like all of like I'm not well fed, I'm not well rested, I'm tired, and all, my God complex comes out, and I just like, what about me? I'm tired. I've got meetings all day from basically morning until late tonight. What about me? Because right? I'm the center of the universe. This is not clear. All of us have accepted the lie that we can be like God. And we define for ourselves now what is right and what is wrong. And no one will tell us. No one can contradict us. No one can push against that. And the Bible says that's what's destroying the universe. So that's the lie. What's the truth? What happens to Adam and Eve after, after they eat from the fruit is they, they, now they have an awareness of their nakedness. Instead of it, they're naked and no shame, instead they're naked and they hide and they cover themselves. Something's happened. And they don't just hide from one another with, you know, these fig leaves, whatever. But they also, like God comes to go on a walk with them and they hide from God. They try to get away from him. And then uh, when God finds them and says, what happened? They immediately, uh, especially the guy, the guy looks at God and says, well, you put this woman here. This is your fault. And so God's like, well, I'm, I'm done talking to you. He goes to the woman. Like, what happened? And she says, the serpent that's here. It's his fault. They blame shift. They judge others. And the Bible makes clear like this. You know, point three, we're going to come back to how this, this posture we have towards God now destroys our relationship with God. But in point two, like this, this posture that I am God destroys not just my relationship with other people, it destroys my relationship with myself. And Genesis 3 shows at great lengths the, the reality with which shame has now entered into our story because we're trying to be God. Our culture is talking a lot about, about shame. And shame is, is essential to Genesis 3. And what's interesting is, you know, all the latest shame researchers are basically just uncovering what Genesis 3 said, you know, thousands of years ago. 
Which is why, like, I don't think this story is naive or strange, because researchers are, are, are basically discovering what's in this text already. And one of those researchers, uh, her name is Brene Brown. Uh, she has a TED Talk, uh, a new Netflix special, and a lot of her, her work is on shame and vulnerability. And she says that shame needs three things to grow in us. It needs secrecy. Right? We, we, we keep things to ourselves. It needs silence. We don't speak up about what's, what's true. And it needs judgment, right? Self-condemnation. And you see all of these things in Genesis 3. They're secrecy. Right now they're covering themselves. They're hiding their, their nakedness. They're, uh, they're hiding from God. Even. They're, they're trying to keep what they've done a secret. There's silence. I mean, I find it really interesting to eat the fruit and then no one, there's no more talking. Adam and Eve don't speak to one another anymore. Actually, don't speak to each other at all in the story. They stop speaking. There's silence until God comes and breaks that silence. And thirdly, there's, there's judgment, right? The only thing they say is condemnation of other people because they can't deal with their own mistakes, their own failure. The shame is all over this passage. So what, what is, how would I define shame? And author uh, Christian Kurt Thompson who wrote a book called Soul of Shame. He defines shame as, as this. Shame says, I am not enough. It's a story we all now tell ourselves because of shame. I am not enough. And ironically, like this is what the serpent is wants them to believe. Right? Do you, you, you guys know you're not God? Are you okay with that? Gosh, it feels like you should be more than what you are. You eat this fruit. You're not enough. You need to be like God. And when we when we decide to become like like God, that's what introduces shame into our experience because. We can't feel like God. And this is how it works. And Brene Brown, actually, I think, she really defines this well. She talks both to, to women and to men. And how our culture puts the, the, like, you need to be God. Like, our culture sends that message to us. Both in saying, hey, define for yourself what is right and wrong. But then shaming us when we don't live up to being gods. And it speaks very, very particularly to men and to women. And here's what she says. That to women, shame says, do it all. Do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Right? In other words, be a goddess. Because you can't do it all, and you will never do it perfectly, and you're always going to sweat. There's only one being in the universe who can do it all and do it perfectly and not sweat. And if you listen to that message, which our culture preaches nonstop, do it all, do it perfectly, never let them see you sweat, of course you're going to wake up every morning say, I can't do that. I'm not enough. I have no chance of measuring up today. That's how it works with, with women, according to Brene Brown. For men, Brene Brown would say, shame says to men in our culture, do not be perceived as weak. And I said, like, I, there is no greater compliment than when someone looks at me and like praises my strength. That uh, there's someone uh, in this church who's given me the nickname uh, Bulldog. It's like, I like that. I'll get a tattoo of that. Right? It's, it's good. It's because I'm tough, right? It's, you're tough to Bulldog. Right? I like that. Or there was uh, another congregant at one point. I was putting lights up back in the Trail Ridge days. And, uh, and he just comes up to me and he says, you know, when you're like the leader who's going up the hill and you're not going to let anyone outwork you. Yeah, tell me more about that. Right? I like that. <laughs> Um, and then many of you know, uh, 
you know, two years ago, we learned a diagnosis with one of our, our kids, and it was, it was a devastating diagnosis. It was right in the middle of probably the hardest season of church planning. We're in a middle school. There's no building land in sight. Um, I'm worn out. I'm tired. And now I'm dealing with like the, 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 the biggest personal crisis of my life. And all of my strength is gone. And all that was left in me was grief and, and sorrow, disappointment with God. And there, like I was, like throws the church planning. Like I've got to keep it together. It's all on me. Don't be weak. You have to do this. You have to stay strong. Don't, don't you dare let anyone see your weakness. And even though those are expectations God has never put on you, or you, nowhere does God ever say, oh, you have to be like God. Don't ever be weak. In fact, like we were there two weeks ago, Genesis 2, God very explicitly says to the man, you can't do this alone. You need help. You need a helper. And he creates the female. We're, like, we're meant to do this Together, we're not meant to be God. And yet our culture says to us men every day, don't be weak. Don't let anyone see weakness in you. And of course, like if that's how I'm going to operate in my life, of course I'm going to wake up every morning and say, I can't do this. I'm not enough. I don't have this in me. Because none of us do. And these ideas, don't let anyone see you're weak. Do it all. Do it perfectly. Never let them see you sweat. Those are lies from hell. That's what the serpent is saying. Be like God. You're not like it. Why aren't you like God? You need to be like, like God. You're not enough. Those are lies from hell. And how's that working out for us? Because here's the irony of like the human condition is that Genesis, Genesis 3, this is why I find this text so compelling, is Genesis 3 um, says that our desire to be like God is actually what fuels our shame and our inadequacies. Because we're in a project we can't win, right? You cannot be God. You cannot be perfect. You can't do it all. You cannot be strong at all times. And if I try to be God, I am not enough is the necessary conclusion to that effort. There's no, there's no way in you and I trying to be God where one day, one morning we'll wake up and be like, I'm God. I did it, right? I'm enough now, right? It doesn't work that way. It is a project doomed to failure. And, and that's why like, I, I don't have trouble believing in supernatural beings evil Who's, who's encouraging us in this project? Right? Because shame says, you aren't good enough. I know what you've done in the past. You aren't pretty enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not strong enough. Who do you think you are? You're a mistake. You're not enough. None of which is anywhere near anything God ever says to us. And it's this shame in us that fuels, researchers have found, is what fuels addiction and depression, aggression, violence, bullying, all the worst things realities of human being are ultimately fueled by I am not enough, fueled by shame. And I hear that and I see that and I think it's just it just seems like we have a critic, someone who's laughing at us, someone who's encouraging us in this self-destructive pattern to, to, to encourage us to continue to try to be God even though we know it's not working, even though we wake up every morning knowing I'm not enough for this. We keep after it. Yes, a talking snake is ridiculous. This is not. This is the human experience. But the lie is you can be like God. It's not true. The truth is you are not God, and God never expected you to be. You are not God, and he never expected you to be. In fact, like, this is literally the one thing. He's, the only thing you have to not do is be God. Right? All you have to eat from the tree. 
Walk with me in the cool of the garden. Be in a relationship and fellowship with me. The one thing you cannot do is go and start defining good and evil for yourself. The only thing I'm asking you not to do is be mute. And it's the one thing we couldn't hold back from. And so now we all, we, I'm going to decide for myself what's right, what's wrong. I'm going, to, I'm going to push forward for my own individualistic pursuit of what I think I should be and who I should be. I'm going to cut God and other people out of that equation entirely. And it is destroying us. It's destroying this world. It's what's wrong. And so how do we stop it, right? How do we, how do we shut this down? And if you have, so the lie is, I'm going to decide for myself what's right, what's wrong. I can be God. The, the truth is, no, you can't. And you were never meant to be. So third, and this is where the, the text ends, is we need, we need a covering. And so trying to, to, uh, to be like God, it destroys ourselves in shame. But worst of all, you know, it's not just that the, the problem of this text is not, well, now I have this internal struggle with myself or I'm not enough. The real problem of this text is, like, I don't know God the way that I'm supposed to do it anymore. And so the only way to deal with my shame is to deal with God. Because I took his job from it. Like, I tried to put myself on the throne of my own life. And, 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 and yet, like, God, who had every right to say, you, what a ridiculous thing to do. You're not God. Look at you. Like, and and to, to, to increase our shame, that's not what he does. In fact, he very intentionally, through this passage, tries to undo the shame we've done to ourselves and try to, to reinsert himself back as the God of our life, the, the, the place he's supposed to occupy in our existence. And so Brene Brown said, like, three things give rise to shame. Silence, secrecy, and judgment. And God deals with all three of those things. First, God comes and breaks the silence. <laughs> Commentators, like they know, God approaches Adam and Eve in a posture of grace. All he says to them initially is he actually asks them questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What have you done? God made us for a conversational relationship with him. And it's why the serpent, what he does is he, ha- he hosts the first Bible study. And listen, I love studying the Bible, but one of the problems with, with people like me who love studying the Bible is oftentimes we, love, we talk about God and not with God. And that's what the serpent does. He's like, let's talk about this command that God gave to you. Let's talk about it. Let's, have, let's, let's get in a small group discussion about, about this. And, and never once does Eve just say, you know what, like, let me ask God about this. God, what, what did you mean? What did you say? What was the... What's going on here? Right? So they talk about God, but not with him, which is why God enters back into the, the relationship with conversation with questions. Where, where are you? What did you do? And it's why I believe the fundamental Christian practice to deal with God is prayer. <clears throat> not scripture reading. The most important practice you have as a Christian is prayer, because prayer is where, where we deal with God, where we speak with God. And we have to remember, like, this is not going to be easy. And for a lot of us, it's like, well, when I pray, I don't really feel his presence. I feel distant. It's, like, hard to, prayer just doesn't feel like it does. Remember, well, remember what happened. Like, we literally fired God from his job and tried to take over. I don't know if you know, like, if you fire someone, my guess is, like, it's going to be hard to have a real personal conversation question with them after you fired them. Because there's, there's strain there. There's relational discord. And, like, our firing of God was not just we fired him from the job, but we literally said, you know, I'm going to define for myself now what is right 
and wrong. And so to, to welcome God back into conversation means I have to give up that project. And I have to be okay. If God says something is evil that I think is good, I have to agree with God. Or if God says something good that I think is evil, like God wins that. And the question for us ultimately in prayer is do we want a God like that? Do we want a God to break into our, you know, our individualist igloo or we're, you know, we're just, we're by ourselves. We cut everyone else and for God to say, it's not going to be like this anymore. I, I now define the good life for you. I now define what's good, what's not. I am your God. Do we even want that? Do you want to speak with God? Do you want to know God as he is? Or might the reason that prayer relationship with God is so difficult is because you don't want it. You don't want him to find what is good, what is evil. You have that covered. And again, I don't want to paper over that. That's this is such a hard thing because our culture and even some churches like encourage us in that project. Right? Even though the scriptures say some things very clearly, and they call them good or they call them evil, we now when we figured some things out. We we now know more than what was revealed in the scriptures, so we can call those things good or evil on our own. Like entire churches endorse that idea or we go with the cultural stream of saying the good life is where you define for yourself what will make you happy and you live for yourself and you live out your own dreams your own desires like prayer eradicates all of that or you can't pray either you meet god on his terms or you can't meet him do you want to know him because god listen i believe god is here this morning as he was in genesis 3 seeking you asking where are you so God, he deals with the silence of shame. He also deals with, with the secrecy. Because the, the man and the woman, they're hiding. They're trying to be secretive, but God will not have it. And that's why he asks the questions. Right? God's not asking, where are you, because he can't find them. He's God. He knows where they are. He doesn't ask them, what did you do, because he's, he's not clear on what happened. He knows what happened. The reason why he is, is asking those questions is because he's letting them leave their secrecy and move into the light. Right? He's not asking those questions to shame them, but actually to save them, to deal with their shame, to care for them, and to bring them back into a relationship with himself. And it's why, if, listen, if we're, if we're going to deal with the consequences of Genesis 3, first is you have to pray. You have to deal with God as he is. But two, like you need community. You need gospel community because the church is the place where we live out the, the, message, the mission of Jesus, which is to seek and to save what is, is lost, which also means like we totally reject the idea here that you must be God. So we expect, as a church, or I expect as your pastor, at times you're going to have doubts. You're going to fail. You're going to have questions. You're going to have struggles. You're, going to, you're not going to live into the Christian life the way that you want to, because I know I don't live into the Christian life the way that I want to. And so we, do not, we are not a community who believes that God, at the beginning of the garden, is shaming dissidents who aren't living up to, the, to, to what he's asked them to do. He's actually meeting them in grace. And we are a community who will do the same as a church, or we're supposed to do the same as a church. We will not shame dissidents. We welcome questions, struggles in the way of Jesus because we, we have no interest in secrecy. Or you don't have to hide. All right? We believe God's grace can cover any sin, any failure. And so we don't, we don't, there's no shame here for anything you think done, anything in your past, because we believe God can meet that in grace and salvation. There's no secrecy. God deals with that. What, what are we, tell me what you've done. Bring it out. Let's talk. So okay, shame needs secrecy, needs silence. God deals with both of those things. But thirdly, with shame, the real trouble of shame is judgment. 
Right? When you wake up and you say, I'm not enough, what you're saying is you're condemned. You're not good. You're not what you should be. And there are two moments of judgment in this text. And we talked about one last week where God, because we fired him, we had to leave the garden. And yet that's not the only act of judgment in this passage. Um, Because once we've left the garden, there's now two ways forward for us. And one is to, to persist in the project of being your own God, of determining for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And the Bible makes clear if that's the, that's the road you persist on, you will never get back to the garden. And shame will be a, an unending loop of self-condemnation and destruction. It's interesting, you know, the movie uh, Safe, it ends with Julianne Moore by herself, which is, is sort of the biblical picture of hell, is that you're alone in this sort of reality, you're your own God, but it's, it's this tragic environment. And C.S. Lewis, you wrote an entire book, like, depicting this, called The Great Divorce. And sort of the money quote from that book is, is at the end of, of, of time, he says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is open. And what, what he's saying is, what hell is in the scriptures, what judgment are is in the scriptures, is not God looking down at us saying, uh, "You're not enough," right? It's it's us saying to God, "We don't want you." We want our own kingdom. I want my own way. And God provides that. And it is, it is, it sounds great. Like, I'll define for myself what is good, what is evil. And then we experience it in shame. You're not enough. We experience it in never living up to the status of being God because we can't. And it becomes this self-destructive loop. That is one path forward. And that is one way of judgment. That's not the only way of judgment in this text. The other is, is in verse 21, where God, uh, to Adam and Eve, to the, the woman and the man, this happens. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And this is, like, this is weird to us, because what God does is he actually he kills two animals. It's the first death we have. Which is interesting, because right, God says, if you eat of this fruit of the tree of the garden, you will die. And they will eventually, but first, these two animals die to give them cover. So God kills two animals, and he covers the man and his wife. These animals have to die to cover their shame, to cover their sin, their guilt, their rejection of God. Substitution, right? And this becomes a story all through the, the, the Bible. But here it's two animals for two humans. In a few chapters in Exodus, when God is freeing the Israelites from the Egyptians, he says to the Israelites, I will save you, but, but the lamb must, you must sacrifice the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost for the Passover, and I will pass over your family. It's one lamb for a whole family. And then later in, in Leviticus, when God has freed Israel, and they're, they're living in their own land, they're moving into the promised land, God sets up a day called the Day of Atonement, where he says, the high priest is going to go, and he's going to sacrifice on your behalf, and it's it's one animal is sacrificed now for the whole sins of a nation. Right? So we've gone from two animals, two people, one animal, one family, one animal, 
one nation. And finally, this story meets its fulfillment when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him to be baptized. And John says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now it's one Lamb for the world. The Son of God for us. Which is what... Which is why what makes my own self-project to be my own God so ridiculous. It always ends in inadequacy and shame and sadness and grief and self-condemnation. It never ends well for me. Which is like, why would I do this? When on, in the gospel, in life with God, if I lay down my, my own desire to define what's good, what's not, my own desire to be my own God, if I could lay it down, what I find, is a covering, not of a couple of animals, but of the Son of God himself, bleeding, dying, giving his life, so that I can get back into the garden. And would you let God be God? Let him cover you. Let him take away your shame. Because in this story, you are enough as is. Every one of us, a child, precious enough for the life of the Son of God. Father, we all come in with our own reasons for why we say in the mirror, not enough. And yet the roots of that statement all go back to when we took up your job. And so God, I pray for the courage of each one of us in this room to hand over the project of being God, the exhausting, self-condemnation, shame-filled reality of, of me being my own God, to lay that down to let the Son of God cover us. God, help us enter that story, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.